Welcome to episode 6 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the director of the museum. This week I will be taking you through the two galleries which focus on the huge impact the Duke of Wellington had on the history of the Foot Guards regiments and looking at some of the key artefacts we have here which act as important reminders of this pivotal character in the nation's history. You may recall last week I said a message had flooded in and then mentioned that it hadn't come from a Mrs Trellis of North Wales and I went on to say that I would reward the first person to email me stating where that reference had come from. Well, the person who crossed the line first was Simon X from Chislehurst in Kent. Simon correctly stated that it came from the long-running radio show I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. Simon, I'm not sure if X is your surname or whether you're sending me a kiss. Simon X would be a good name for a terrorist, perhaps, but as they don't allow terrorists in Chislehurst, I'm going to assume that it was a kiss. Being 64 years of age, ugly, and in the middle of a six-week lockdown, I'll take whatever love is being offered. A set of two DVDs about the museum and the guards is on its way to you, so I hope you enjoy them. And so to business. Last week, I shared with you some extracts from General George Higginson's autobiography, which actually carried his first-hand account of Wellington's funeral. So we seem to have started at the end. Sorry about that. These two galleries are full of important Wellingtonia, if you will allow. But before we look at the Peninsula campaign, let us pause to look at what was going on in the Low Countries. 1793 found all three guards regiments being sent to the Low Countries under the command of His Royal Highness Frederick Duke of York, the second son of King George III, who was young and inexperienced, but royal, so he was immediately at a disadvantage amongst the older and more senior Allied commanders. The Guards Brigade was present at the Siege of Valenciennes and at Lincelle, where they defeated 5,000 well-entrenched troops with a spirited bayonet charge. Much later, when the Duke of York became Commander-in-Chief at Horse Guards, he called on his disastrous experiences in this expedition so as to rectify these deficiencies and to institute many other useful reforms. At this time, the Guards weren't only fighting in Spain and Portugal. On entering the gallery, one of the first artefacts that takes one's attention is what must be the first medal awarded for bravery in the British Army. It is referred to as being a Distinguished Conduct Medal, but it is not the same as the Distinguished Conduct Medal which we know today. It was awarded to Private John Skinner of King's Company of the First Guards, and he won it at a place called Fort de Batz in the Netherlands during the Walcheren Expedition in 1809. As the French fled from a gun battery near the port, they spiked 12 of their cannons. That means they drove metal spikes into the touch holes of the cannons, then snapped them off, thus rendering the guns inoperable. The advancing Allied troops included the First Guards, and they were under constant bombardment from a French naval flotilla moored just offshore. The situation was looking fairly untenable when Private Skinner asked his commanding officer for permission to try and unspike the guns. Permission having been given by Colonel Rainsford, Skinner went forward under heavy fire with a brace and a bit 
a drill in other words, which he had made. He then proceeded to straddle each gun barrel in turn and patiently drill out the spikes from the touch holes. Unbelievably, Skinner managed to drill out all 12 cannons without being killed. The guns were then brought to bear against the French flotilla, who were forced to draw forth lest they were hit. Although the Walcheron expedition was largely deemed a failure, this one action was salvaged by Skinner's quick thinking and bravery. The deed was considered to be so meritorious as to warrant a special recognition. His Royal Highness the Duke of York was approached, as Colonel of the Regiment, who suggested a large medallion be cast to record the event. The obverse side shows Skinner sitting astride the cannon barrel, drilling it out, and the reverse side shows the newly unspiked battery of guns firing on the French flotilla. I fear his newfound celebrity status must have gone to Skinner's head. He was promoted to the rank of sergeant and given the rather cushy post of being the recruiting sergeant in Chatham, a post he held until 1918, when unfortunately he was caught ordering two cheques from £5 to £15 so as to pocket the difference. He was tried by court-martial in the Tower of London, found guilty and was sentenced to receive 300 lashes with the cat o' nine tails and was reduced to the rank of private once more. This surely must be the alpha and the omega of military performance. Now let's look at the Peninsula campaign. When Spain and Portugal appealed to Britain for aid to fight Napoleon Bonaparte, a British force under General Sir Arthur Wellesley was dispatched from England. Within a month, Wellesley defeated the French at Relica and Vimiero, but was then superseded by two other more senior generals, namely Burrell and Hamilton, who instead of letting Wellesley pursue and destroy the French, agreed terms liberating Portugal, but not Spain. This enraged British public opinion. When the three generals returned to England, there was a court of inquiry, and command passed to General Sir John Moore, who landed at Corunna. Moore marched into Spain, but was then attacked by a superior force led by Napoleon himself. Through the winter of 1808, the British were driven back to Corunna with terrible losses. The appalling conditions affected the morale of many regiments very badly. But Sir John Moore noticed one brigade marching along, and I quote, with drums beating, the drum major twirling his staff, and no, it wasn't Steve State, as if in their own barrack yard. These must be the guards. And indeed it was. It was the first guards, the senior regiment of infantry, setting an example for the whole British army. Sadly, Sir John Moore was killed in an action trying to delay the French while his army escaped by sea. Wellesley was cleared of blame at the Court of Inquiry in London and he returned to Portugal in 1809. He crossed the Douro River in May and defeated the French at Talavera. As a reward for this, he was elevated to become Viscount Wellington. The campaign was to go on for another four and a half years, during which the guards achieved distinctions at Corunna, Talavera, Fuentes d'Honor, Barossa, Salamanca and Neve. Wellington said at the time, The guards are, in every respect, the example and object of admiration of the whole army. The Peninsular War came to an end in April 1814 at the rather pointless Battle of Toulouse, which was fought five days after Napoleon had abdicated. However, 
Fate was to bring these two generals face to face a year and two months later on the field of Waterloo. One might be forgiven for thinking that Wellington didn't like giving his soldiers medals. The Military General Service Medal for the Peninsula Campaign between 1793 and 1814 was only authorised for distribution in 1848, a full 33 years after the campaign concluded. There was just one medal issued, but, depending on which battles you participated in, it had up to 29 campaign clasps, which were then fitted to the blue, crimson and blue ribbon. This is the only British medal to have an American campaign clasp on it, because during the period of the Peninsula campaigns, the British were required to pop across the pond to participate in the American War of 1812, when we actually fought alongside Native Americans in the shape of the Shawnee Indian tribe. I told you last week about the career of General Sir George Higginson, and how he was the son of another grenadier, Major General George Powell Higginson, who served with Wellington in both Spain and Portugal. He carried the colour of the regiment at Corunna and commanded a party of a hundred men who stormed the breach at San Sebastian. We have on display the sketchbook which he used when spying on enemy defences, noting down what strength of numbers the enemy had and where their defences were set up. Invaluable information when planning an attack. He was also sent to the Netherlands on the ill-fated Walcheren expedition, where he nearly died of the fever. It rather underlines just what a family affair it was to serve in the guards. George Higginson Sr. also served alongside his brother, Alexander, who was in the first guards. Higginson went on to marry Lady Frances Needham, who was the daughter of Francis Needham, Viscount Kilmory, whose very fine tailcoat we have on display, and is the one I described to you two weeks ago. And so we come to Waterloo, one of the best-known battles in British history, and right up there with Hastings and Culloden as being pivotal moments in our history. On the 6th of April, 1814, Napoleon, then in his mid-forties, was forced to abdicate the throne. With the Treaty of Fontainebleau, he was exiled to Elba, a Mediterranean island off the coast of Italy. Less than a year later, on February 26, 1815, Napoleon escaped Elba and sailed to the French mainland with a group of more than a thousand supporters. On March the 20th, he returned to Paris, where he was welcomed by cheering crowds. The new King Louis fled and Napoleon embarked on what came to be known as his Hundred Days Campaign. Upon Napoleon's return to France, a coalition of allies, the Austrians, British, Prussians and Russians, who considered the French emperor an enemy, began to prepare for war. Napoleon raised a new army and planned to strike preemptively, defeating the Allied forces one by one before they could launch a united attack against him. In June 1815, Napoleon's forces marched into Belgium, where separate armies of British and Prussian troops were camped. At the Battle of Ligny on June the 16th, Napoleon defeated the Prussians under the command of Field Marshal von Blücher. However, the French were unable to totally destroy the Prussian army. Two days later, on June the 18th, Napoleon led his army of some 72,000 troops against the United Allied forces, which had taken up a position south of Brussels, near the village of Waterloo. The Allied army, which included British, Belgian, Dutch and German troops, was commanded by Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington, who had gained prominence fighting against the French during the Peninsular War. 
For the three guards regiments, Waterloo proved to be a defining moment in their history. Wellington had fought using the guards on many occasions and knew them to be stalwart, solid soldiers who were, in the main, well led. Wellington had already worked out where he would face his old adversary. He was actually at a ball in Brussels when he was informed by his staff that the enemy had been sighted. The hosts of the ball, the Duke and Duchess of Richmond, were stood with him in the library when Richmond asked him, where will you face him? Wellington pulled across a map and pointed to a crossroads called Catra He said, either here, or if not there, then here, and pointed to an open area at a place called Waterloo. Now, picture if you will, the front line of Allied troops under the overall command of the Duke of Wellington, facing the front rank of French troops under the command of Napoleon Bonaparte. On Wellington's right flank, therefore on Bonaparte's left flank, there was a huge walled Belgian farmhouse called Hougamont Farm. Now beyond this building was the route to the Channel and home if things went badly. Therefore Wellington did not want the farm to be overrun, thus weakening his right flank and thereby allowing the French to cut off his route home. So he deliberately placed the three guards regiments in, around and behind the farm because he knew they would fight well and would stay to the last man before surrendering the foothold. Bonaparte guessed that Wellington would be nervous about having his escape route cut off, so he decided to set up a diversionary attack on the farmhouse as if to cut Wellington off from the coast, hoping that Wellington would take troops from the centre of his line to reinforce the farm, thus weakening the centre, at which point Bonaparte would punch through with his famous tightly packed French column, with their drummers beating out to the inexorable pas de charge. However, the Iron Duke was one jump ahead and had deliberately chosen the guards' regiments to defend the farm and had told them they had to stand as he wouldn't be reinforcing them. According to Wellington's notes, at about 10am on the 18th of June 1815, Napoleon's brother, Jerome, led the attack against the farm and was beaten off repeatedly. It was only ever meant to be a diversion, However, it became quite personal to Jerome, who wouldn't let it go, and he repeatedly threw his troops into attack after attack, wave upon wave. This went on for the remainder of the morning and the afternoon. By the end of the action, some 9,000 French lay dead and dying around the farm. The guards' defence of Hougamont Farm tied up two complete French divisions. At one point, the French surged around the back of the farmhouse where the rear gates stood open, and several of them, about 30 in number, under the command of a massive French officer called Le Gros, managed to fight their way into the inner courtyard. The officer in overall command of the farm, Lieutenant Colonel John MacDonald, led a small party, including Sergeant Graham of the Coldstream Guards, to stem the flow of the marauding French streaming into the courtyard by closing the huge gates. Between MacDonald and Graham, they managed to secure them shut, after which a bloody hand-to-hand fight took place, which resulted in all the French attackers being killed, with the exception of a young French drummer boy. Despite being faced with a hugely superior force that day, the guards held out and defended the farm. Wellington always saw the 2nd Guards Division's defence of the farm as the pivotal action which turned the day in his favour. 
In a crucial blunder, Napoleon waited until after midday to give the command to attack in order to let the waterlogged ground dry out after the previous night's rainstorm. Now the 1st Guards Division were facing Bonaparte's troops on the main field of battle. To avoid the worst of the French artillery bombardment, the commander of the division, General Sir Peregrine Maitland, had his men laying down on the reverse side of the hill. Now we come to an area of slight controversy in that there is an often used phrase, up guards an atom, which purports to come from the moment when Wellington ordered Maitland's men into action. We have a letter in the museum in which Wellington refutes ever saying that phrase. He agrees he may have, and probably did, use his sword to point out the advancing French column, and he thinks he said, Now Maitland, now is your time, followed a few seconds later by, Stand up guards, make ready, fire. But he categorically denies, and I quote, ever charging like a common trooper. The devastating volley fire from Maitland's two battalions of First Guards, going into the tightly packed advancing troops, threw the French column into immediate disorder. Each musket ball was taking out two, and in some cases three, soldiers of the French Imperial Old Guard. Eventually the column couldn't go forward because of the press of dead bodies at the front. The column shuddered to a halt and stopped. Now in all their previous actions, the column had never stopped advancing, driven on by the mass drummers beating out the pas de charge. Les Anciens, the hoary old Frenchman who had followed Napoleon all the way up through Europe, eventually panicked and started to retreat, pursued by the Allied troops, and the rout began. The victory was not won without help. Bonaparte's delay gave the Prussian Marshal von Blücher's remaining troops, who by some accounts numbered more than 30,000, time to march to Waterloo and join the battle later that day. Wellington acknowledges that von Blücher's arrival made the difference between defeat and victory. Although Napoleon's troops mounted a strong attack against the British, the arrival of the Prussians turned the tide against the French. The French Emperor's outnumbered army retreated in chaos. As an aside, Gerhard Lebrecht von Blücher was something of a legend in that he had just suffered a massive defeat at Ligny two days before Waterloo, in which, at 73 years of age, his horse had been shot dead under him during a charge, trapping him under the dead body. He was trampled by his own troops as they went forward, trampled again by them as they were routed, and then trampled by the French as they chased the routed Prussians. He spent the night and the following day dabbing his wounds with a mixture of rhubarb and garlic in between regularly imbibing draughts of schnapps. He then had a choice. He could quite understandably go home or he could ride on in support of Wellington. Thankfully, he chose the latter. If you go into the House of Lords, you will find two vast paintings facing each other. One is of Nelson's victory at Trafalgar and opposite is a painting by Daniel MacLeese of Wellington shaking hands with von Blücher after the Battle of Waterloo. It is occasionally referred to as the silent meeting, as Wellington couldn't speak German and von Blücher couldn't speak English. By some estimates, the French suffered more than 33,000 casualties, while the British and Prussian casualties numbered more than 22,000. 
reportedly fatigued and in poor health during the Belgian campaign, Napoleon committed tactical errors and had acted indecisively. He was also blamed for appointing inadequate commanders. Ultimately, the Battle of Waterloo marked the end of Napoleon's military career. Allegedly, he rode away from the battle in tears. Wellington went on to serve twice as British Prime Minister, while von Blücher sadly died a few years later. As I've already mentioned, Wellington saw the Guard's involvement in this battle as being pivotal to his success on the day. For that reason, six weeks after the battle, the Prince Regent and the Duke of Wellington issued a decree to say to mark the role they have played in this battle, the Guards will be allowed to wear the headdress of their vanquished enemy, for it was the French Imperial Old Guard who used to wear bearskin caps. They were, and still are, made from Canadian brown bear. Canada was a French dominion, and that is how the guards have come to wear this iconic headdress, and that is why they will not give them up. It is the only headdress in the entire British armed forces that was awarded as a battle honour. It was the same decree that authorised the first guards to add grenadier into their regimental nomenclature, for they had beaten the French grenadiers on the battlefield. From here on in, they were to be known as the first or Grenadier Regiment of Foot Guards. On display in the gallery we have Maitland's medals. We have a bravery award presented to Sergeant Graham by his fellow sergeants in the Coldstream Guards. We also have one of the original handmade bricks from Hougamont Farm, as well as the shattered gate lock, some shards of wood and chain from the gates as well. We also have the two huge stone balls that sat atop the gate pillars, not the lightest thing to take off the battlefield. We have a portrait of, and the sword belonging to, Ensign George Muir of the First Guards, as well as the remains of the King's colour which he carried in the Battle of Waterloo. Colours tend to be presented in pairs, and the companion of this flag, the regimental colour, used to hang in the Guards' chapel until it was destroyed when the chapel was bombed in World War II. We also have the ornate porcelain-handled fork that Wellington used to use for his meals during this campaign. We have the silver chalice from which the first guards received Holy Communion on the night before the battle. The pattern, the silver dish that is placed under the chin of communicants, is held in the Museum of the Corps of Army Music in Nella Hall in Twickenham. However, the two items were brought together in June 2006 to mark the 350th anniversary of the formation of the First Guards and all the Grenadiers attending that anniversary church service in the Guards Chapel received Holy Communion from that chalice and pattern. We have another piece of Wellingtonia in that we have his gold grenade tie-pin or to be more correct, his stock pin as Wellington always favoured wearing a linen stock around his neck. The pin is displayed next to a lock which purports to be of Wellington's hair. I suspect this is somewhat like Wellington's horse Copenhagen. The horse must have been part caterpillar insofar as many sergeants' messes and one or two officers' messes all display a mounted hoof which claims to be one of the four of Copenhagen's hooves. They can't all be right. You may recall that Marlborough was given Blenheim Palace to live in as a reward for his victory in battle. Well, the Duke of Wellington was also given a stately home called Stratfield Say, and he has to deliver, every year, a quitrent banner 
for the privilege of living there. I think it fair to say the Brits have a long memory, and they like to rub salt into the wounds of their enemies. The design for the quit-rent banner for Marlborough was loosely based on the French colour captured at Blenheim. The one for Stratfield Say actually is a French tricolour. We have one on display in the museum. Not very subtle, but quite amusing. We also have a very fine officer's tailcoat, which belonged to Wellington, and I love the story attached as to how it came to be in the museum. My predecessor, Captain David Horn, was wandering round one of the old county shows that used to be so popular. These were huge affairs held over several days, which attracted thousands of people, so the guards would send along their recruiting team, who would set up displays to attract young men to join up. David was at one of these shows when he spotted the guard's stand, and on it was displayed a very fine coatee on a mannequin. David went up to the recruiting sergeant, and the conversation went something like this. Good morning, sergeant. Good morning, sir. May I take a closer look at this coatee, please? Knock yourself out, sir. So David carefully undid the hooks and eyes on the front of the coatee and eased it off the mannequin to examine it, after which he cried, Dear God, do you have any idea what this is? Yes, sir. It's an officer's coatee, isn't it? Well, yes, said David, but do you have any idea who this belonged to? What do you mean, sir? This belonged to the Duke of Wellington, man. To which the sergeant replied, No, it didn't, sir. It belonged to some bloke called Wellesley. This most wonderful scarlet garment, with its high collar and ornate gold lacework, was stood outdoors in all weathers until it was recovered to the museum for safekeeping. There are a number of excellent quotes which are attributed to Wellington, and it's worth taking a moment to consider just some of these. I just love the edge in all of them. On the subject of his main adversary, Wellington said, I used to say of Napoleon that his presence on the battlefield made the difference of 40,000 men. On the subject of winning Waterloo, My heart is broken by the terrible loss I have sustained in my old friends and companions and my poor soldiers. Believe me, Nothing except a battle lost can be half so melancholy as a battle won. On the subject of being accused of being Anglo-Irish aristocracy, being born in a stable does not make one a horse. On the subject of bravery, there is nothing on earth so stupid as a gallant officer. On the subject of cavalry in battle, the only thing they can be relied on to do is to gallop too far and too fast. On the subject of working in Parliament, there are no manifestos like cannons and musketry. On being snubbed at a ball some years after Waterloo when a group of French officers deliberately turned their backs on him. Pray do not worry, I've seen their backs before. On the subject of his own troops on the eve of Waterloo. I do not know what effect these men will have upon the enemy, but by God they frighten me. And on the subject of British non-commissioned officers. It is true of these non-commissioned officers that they regularly get drunk by eight in the evening and go to bed soon after. But they always take care to do first whatever they are bid. In my opinion, there is no one in the armies of the world so intelligent and so valuable as an English sergeant, 
provided you can get him sober, which is possible. And lastly, it is pretty clear he had no time for bureaucracy. This was sent from him to the British Foreign Office in 1812. Gentlemen, whilst marching from Portugal to a position which commands the approach to Madrid and the French forces, my officers have been diligently complying with your requests, which have been sent by Her Majesty's ship from London to Lisbon, and thence by dispatch to our headquarters. We have enumerated our saddles, bridles, tents and tent poles, and all manner of sundry items, for which His Majesty's government holds me accountable. I have dispatched reports on the character, wit, and the spleen of every officer. Each item and every farthing has been accounted for, with two regrettable exceptions for which I beg your indulgence. Unfortunately, the sum of one shilling and ninepence remains unaccounted for in one infantry battalion's petty cash, and there has been a hideous confusion as to the number of jars of raspberry jam issued to one cavalry regiment during a sandstorm in western Spain. This reprehensible carelessness may be related to the pressure of the circumstance, since we are at war with France, a fact which may come as a bit of surprise to you gentlemen in Whitehall. This brings me to my present purpose, which is to request elucidation of my instructions from His Majesty's Government, so that I may better understand why I am dragging my army over these barren plains. I construe that perforce it must be one of two alternative duties as given below. I shall pursue either one with the best of my ability, but I cannot do both. One, to train an army of uniformed British clerks in Spain for the benefit of the accountants and copyboys in London, or perchance, two, to see to it that the forces of Napoleon are driven out of Spain, your most obedient servant, Wellington. One other interesting story from this era concerns an officer of the First Guards called the Honourable Orlando Bridgman. He was commissioned at 17 years of age when the regiment was fighting in Cadiz in Spain. When the regiment moved on, he was left behind because he was suffering from the fever. Once recovered, whilst trying to travel north to rejoin the regiment, he found himself present at the capture of Seville in August 1812. After the action, a sergeant of chasseurs begged him to help a wounded French officer called Marbay. Marbay told Bridgman that he had arranged to meet his fiancée, a Mademoiselle de Castilla, in Madrid. Now that Marbay was dying, she would be alone in enemy territory. Please, he begged, tell her of my fate and help her produce a pass through British lines so she can return to Paris. Bridgman reached Madrid and went to the address he had been given. The young woman he found there was utterly charming, and Bridgman quickly arranged safe passage for her. As she left, she gave him her full-length crimson silk cloak and said she hoped to see him in Paris when the war ended. Three years later, when Bridgman reached Paris, having been wounded at Waterloo, he rushed to the address she'd given him. To his chagrin, Marbet had survived his wounds, gone to Paris, and married Mademoiselle de Castilla. Within the Bridgman family, it is believed that Bridgman wrapped himself in the cloak on the night before Waterloo. Bridgman went on to marry the niece of Francis Needham, who owned the magnificent officer's tailcoat we spoke of two weeks ago. Sadly, our man Bridgman died at the very early age of just 33. All guardsmen are told during their training to look up, and that's what I'm telling you now. 
As you wander through the galleries that cover this period in the guard's history, you need to look up, because we've mounted one exhibit on the ceiling, as it was the only space large enough to carry this particular artefact. Some years ago, I received an email from a gentleman called Mr. Anthony Knight. In the email, he sent me a photo of a regimental colour of the 1st or Grenadier Regiment of Foot Guards, draped over a privet hedge. He said the flag had been in his family for generations. No one knew how or why they came to have it, but as he had no one to leave the flag to, would the museum like to have it? This huge flag, which measures six foot on the pike and six foot six on the fly, showed that it was from the first stand of colours issued after the Battle of Waterloo. Mr Knight said he was not a rich man, but if the museum was willing to pay the £300 to cover the DHL freight costs, then we could have it for the collection as a donation. Obviously, I was keen to have the flag, and I was musing on where I could find £300 as I sat there opening the morning's post. I opened the last envelope of that morning's post to find a letter from the Manchester branch of the Grenadier Guards Association, who told me they had met recently and had had a bit of a whip round for the museum, and he enclosed a cheque for exactly £300. It just goes to show that God was a guardsman. So I think we will stop there. I hope you have enjoyed learning a bit about the artefacts from the Peninsula Campaign and from Waterloo, and hearing some tales about the Iron Duke himself. If you wish to support the work we are doing here in the museum, you can go to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and hit the Support Us button. Do please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating, ideally a good one, as that helps us a lot. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been Episode 6 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. Until next week, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up. Down. Out.